Hi, I'm Alicia Avendrop, and this is Tridge Agri Insider, the podcast where we unlock valuable industry insights from top leaders and key decision makers at the world's leading companies in agri-food. Let's welcome Shalom Beko, Managing Director and Founder of Afrivana. Afrivana is a multinational wholesale distributor of African superfoods, providing bulk and private label offerings, as well as advisory services for trade with Africa. Hi, Shalom. Thank you for joining Agri Insider today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I thought, you know, you have a really interesting background, and I thought we would just perhaps start with at, at the very beginning. Um, I'm just going to ask a really blanket question. What got you into agriculture? Well, well, um, I guess that's, that's a great question to start with considering Agri Insider, right? Um, so I am born and raised here in Nigeria and agriculture is really the main source of livelihood for a lot of people. And my family was no exception. Um, so I grew up with agriculture in my family, grandfather, father, um, everywhere culture. You know, that's how you eat. That's how you make your living. Um, that's how my father paid for his school. So it's it's a way of life. And so I was just born into it. Okay, so you were born into it. Uh, it's been a part of your life, but you didn't always do agriculture, right? This is kind of a, a newer venture. Maybe give us a bit of backstory into kind of that the, your career, your trajectory, because you know I see this a lot in agriculture. People are born into the industry, or you know it's kind of like inherited in into their their kind of life or their their identity right but then they try to and i and i kind of followed a similar story they try to kind of escape it uh but then somehow it does pull them back because it's in their blood right it's in their it's in their identity somehow ingrained so maybe i don't know if that's kind of relatable for you if you followed a similar a similar journey but maybe just give us some insights on how you know, how that kind of looked for you as you maybe drifted away from ag and then and now back to it and off Rivana. Uh, great point. And, and you're absolutely right. So, yes, you know, being born into it was one thing, but then actually, you know, professionally being in it and doing it is a whole nother thing. And so, you know, despite being born into it, the funny thing is, you know, growing up after school, uh, or during my school breaks, I would go back to the village. And of course, you have to go to the farm. So the men wake up early, we go off to the farm, which was quite a distance away. So we'd all trek and go out there and we'd be there all day. And so it wasn't something you actually enjoyed doing. <laughs> it, was, it was just something that's like, this is work. And we didn't quite enjoy doing it. So, you know, um, especially here in Nigeria, as things continue to develop, you know, you move into the, uh, uh, the urban areas and you get attracted to other things and other opportunities. And so I got sexy enough. So it's not something that you look forward to getting into. I didn't. And I didn't really look back at the potential or 
look at agriculture ever as an opportunity or something I would get into, whether in high school, college, or after. Um, so long story short, you know, I went to school, college uh, in the States, and I got into real estate. I got into banking. I played professional sports. And so those were a lot more the career paths I potentially saw myself in going into. But after a long journey, uh, I kind of came back to agriculture. And how that happened was, you know, I spent a number of years in the States. Once I moved from Nigeria to the United States in my teens and experiencing some of high school, all of my college years, experiencing professional sports in Los Angeles, um, I still had this yearning to come back home. And what would happen was I would come back to Nigeria looking for business opportunities. And, you know, I, I, I tried it with real estate. Um, I tried it with marketing, really, uh, you know, online marketing. And these were very early on in the early 2010s, 11s, and 12s. And so it wasn't, some of these industries weren't quite as popular as they are now. And it was during those trips that I started to notice and observe other opportunities. I started to see that there was a lot more opportunities here in Nigeria than there were in the States. And I would go back to the village, you know, uh, some of the areas that I grew up in, and a lot of places are still underdeveloped. A lot of people are still farming, right? And being from Northern Nigeria, there's this whole insecurity issue. So, you know, you have herdsmen clashing with farmers, you had, you know, the, the terrorist group, the Boko Harams, and over the years of coming back multiple times and looking at what I considered or what everybody thought was sexy to get into, whether it's tech or finance or e-commerce, I went back to the States and it just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. What happened was one day I happened to be drinking Jamaica. Jamaica is what Mexicans call, uh, you know, hibiscus tea, right? They call it Florida Jamaica or Agua de Jamaica. And as soon as I drank it, it just took me back to Nigeria because it was the exact same drink, exact same taste, and it just clicked. I was, I was like, okay, if they're making this drink here, where'd they get the flowers? And so I started doing that research. I did the research and I discovered that most of the hibiscus flowers actually came from Nigeria. And most of it is grown in Northern Nigeria in the communities that I grew up in because we farm it, but we always used it as a, a sort of like a boundary crop to set boundaries around your farm. And so that's when the realization just came to me that um, I needed to somehow connect the rural area where these crops were being farmed and produced and connecting it to the United States. And so that's kind of what brought me back into agriculture. I saw the business opportunity. I saw the opportunity to bring development to the rural area because then I'm connecting international markets. And at the end of the day, all I was trying to do even with e-commerce and real estate, everything I was trying to do was centered around international business. 
And so that was the mindset I always had. And so that's really what brought me back into agriculture. I see it as an opportunity to, to scale development um, in the rural areas that I grew up in. And I see the, a business opportunity. Agriculture, agriculture is very lucrative, <laughs> you know, from a business perspective. It's very lucrative. It's just labor intensive. And that's what drives you away from it. And so, yeah, that's really what brought me back into agriculture was that whole journey. So yeah, I'm glad, and, and, I'm glad you brought me back. And I loved your story about being in the States in this like environment that I don't want to say was foreign, but it wasn't your home country in the sense that you were born in Nigeria. Right. And you were just taken back to this childhood moment almost right like a connection back in time uh and i think that's really powerful because if you're feeling that way there's definitely other people all around the world who would want that same sensation or even get that exactly. same sensation from um a beverage or a smell or you know whatever it might be a food uh, an environment right i think i think that's that's really powerful um you know you hear you speak, I kind of was thinking, you know, what what drives your passion in agriculture? And it, it sounds like it might be this kind of connection between Africa and the states. And I guess kind of connecting these dots or being maybe this like liaison or intermediary between these two cultures and spaces, because I, I would describe you just based on kind of previous conversations we've had, but also just hearing you speak today as someone who kind of transcends both cultures, right? This kind of Western US culture and this African Nigerian culture, um, you know, is that kind of hitting the hitting it on the nail? Do you, like, is that where you would derive a lot of your passion today? I mean, I guess what, what makes you wake up in the morning? Like what gets you excited? I tell you what, there, there's a few things. So have you watched the movie Coming to America? No, but I'm gonna write that oh, down. Oh my goodness, oh wow. I should have made you watch that before we had this interview. <laughs> okay, so I'll give you a short synopsis. Okay. Coming to America is about this prince that comes from a made-up African kingdom called Zamunda, and he comes to America. And so it pretty much follows his entire experience coming to this new country, and his purpose of coming, he had a mission and a purpose for coming. I'm not going to kill it for you. Now, um, how that relates to me, there's a lot of things in that movie that, you know, are quite exaggerated, but I find a lot of similarities, right? And not a lot of people have these experiences where you move from another country, you know, at an age where you're already, right, with your culture, with your principles, with all of that, and you move into a new society and a new culture. And exactly what you said, there is, there is this whole entire space that I think is becoming a lot more popular now with multicultural kids. There's a whole generation of multicultural kids or, or bicultural kids, right? Whether it's India, America, India, UK, Nigeria, UK, Nigeria, America, and it's this diaspora community. And the diaspora community actually spends billions of dollars a year. Now there's a lot more research behind diaspora communities, but I'm part of what you call, you know, 
that diaspora community. And we are a unique set of, or group of people that have these bicultural experiences and are able to, like you said, understand and transcend two different cultures and be able to live in both, communicate in both, and function in both. Now, yeah. there is a whole culture shock to that that happens as well, which can be a whole nother study. However, yes, I am part of that. And what I've been able to do with my journey in this process is, and, and my business has really been finding the strengths and using them. And the strengths for me are that, look, there's people that want to do business in Africa, but have no clue, that's one, or two, have already failed or had bad experiences, right? Um, there's a lot of people like that. And then there's people that, from the Africa side, they want to do business in America or in Europe, right? But they also don't understand the cultural nuances. And so that's a big part of international business and international trade is you have to understand cultural nuances because it gives you leverage and gives you that edge to succeed, whether it's identifying the right products, whether it's understanding, you know, how different cultures conduct business differently, right? You go to Asia, the way they conduct business is very different than what you would find in America. Some people are a lot more, let's get straight to it. What's the deal? Let's get to the numbers. Let's do the deal. Other cultures are more, I have to get to know you a bit. I need to take my time. It's not a rush. And so going back to this whole thing, yes, what drives me has really been, one, experiencing a new society, experiencing America. I saw a lot of good, but I also saw a lot of bad. There's pros, there's cons. And coming back home, I always knew I was coming back home to Nigeria. So coming back home with new eyes and a new lens, I saw opportunities in ways that people who are in Nigeria or on the continent who haven't gone out, don't get to see or haven't seen for themselves or haven't experienced. And so it's really about bridging those two. So to put it simply, yes, I, I am a bridge. Right. And, and that's the part of business I sit in, whether it's consulting or in the products I trade, it's I am able to bridge two cultures, two countries, two communities, two societies, and I use it to my advantage. And the passion for me personally comes from the fact that I got tired of coming back home to Nigeria and seeing things the same way they always have been. There are you know, people still doing the same things the same way that they've been doing it before I was born. And so we're in 2023. And for me, that passion and what I found purpose in to, to tell you, it's more about purpose for me. There's a deep sense of purpose for me to be a bridge, right? Both for the African-American community of people who haven't experienced Africa and for the African community who are trying to uh, scale and get more development from Western society. And so I find deep purpose in that. And I found my purpose in life through that is in whatever I do, whether it's agriculture or anything else, 
I find deep purpose in being that bridge and being able to, you know, uh, contribute to both communities that I'm a part of, both on the continent in Africa and in the States. And so that's really what drives my passion. And I wake up with that every day. I, I love that. And it, and it resonates with me as well. Uh, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm half German, half American. So I grew up speaking right. both languages. You know, it's not between the African continent and North American continent, but it's a slightly different and also very interesting bridge to kind of uh, sometimes stand on between the European or I guess the German culture and, and the American culture. So th that really resonates with me. And I think it's really beautiful how you're translating that into um, a business model, right? You're, you're, you're translating that into an actionable uh, business and connecting all these dots between the two cultures um, in a really cool way. And I guess that leads me to my next question. You know, can you tell us a bit about Afrivana? You know, what does Afrivana do? Why Afrivana? Why now? Great question. And, you know, like I said, when I had that experience of, you know, tasting the hibiscus tea and realizing it's the same drink they call Jamaica, we call Zobo, um, I always wanted to find something to bridge both the continent and the diaspora. And when I found this one product, it wasn't even just about the African continent and the diaspora because so many cultures use it, right? Um, and so it just kind of fell into this space of trade. Now, I had never really traded physical products between the continent uh, and anywhere before. However, my father, my father used to ship cars since I was little. He's, you know, kind of a car fanatic. And so he would get cars from Germany, cars from the US. And so it, there, there was a bit of understanding of how goods could move to another. And so with Afrivana, again, it was that realization that, all right, there is a business opportunity here. And there is a great, you know, community development aspect to it. And Afrivana really just started off as a trade business. How can I get the hibiscus flowers from Nigeria into North America and South America. From a very fundamental perspective, that really all, that's all it was. And that's how it started. It just started simply as movement of goods, movement of trade, you know, selling commodities. But it has since developed and, you know, grown into something bigger, right? And something that I'm very proud of, which is that we're not, we're not just looking at commodity trade. Because for a very long time, that is all Africa has done, is traded commodities. And going back to this passion and purpose I feel about developing my communities, these were some of the things I realized while trading hibiscus flowers was that, okay, we're taking it from the farm, we're trading it, and that's that. So the only value I've brought is really for a farmer 
to be able to harvest it, dry it, and sell it off. There's no value addition. I'm not, you know, uh, uh, creating any new jobs. It's I'm doing the same thing that I'm complaining about other people doing. However, also because of the the I guess the advantage I have of being able to get access into the states and see what it's used for, I started to see and pay attention and visit. I started visiting my customers to see exactly what they use it for. And I realized, okay, it's not just the drinks. You know, you go to Starbucks, you find it there. You know, you go to some of these places and not just drinks, you start, you go to a PetSmart, you know, you go to a spa, you see it in shampoos, you see it in soaps, you see it in candles. Um, you know, you start to see that it's used for a variety of things, right? You go to, you know, vegan food places in Los Angeles and you find that your vegan tacos are made with hibiscus flowers. And so that kind of took Afrovada to, or that led me to this vision of Afrovada becoming bigger, of not just being a trader of commodities, but also getting into value addition. Vertically integrated. Right? Whether it's, right, vertically integrating into small-scale manufacturing, hopefully going into large-scale manufacturing someday, but also into distribution. And the distribution aspect just came from the fact that everybody I was selling to was most of them primarily in Mexico because of the, the, the commodity I was primarily selling. They were either in Mexico or in the States, and you're talking about distributors or manufacturers. That's what their business right. was. And I saw that they were distributing other Hispanic products from Latin countries. And so that's what got everyone down the line of distribution of African uh, superfoods and African products because there aren't any major African distributors in America of African products. And so that's really why we've gone down this lane of not just trade, but manufacturing. And, and, and I mean, let, let's be a bit honest, right? I think this is a major issue on the African continent is that, you know, we take so many raw material goods and they get taken out of the country or out of the continent and then manufactured and processed in the Western markets or even places like Latin America for then re-export to the United States, right? Our supply chains are so complex and, you know, in some ways inefficient, right? Like we're moving these goods, you know, sometimes right. 10 times around the world before they make it into that, let's say, hibiscus flavored water drink uh, at Tesco in the U UK, for example, right? Um, and I think this kind of concept of vertical integration um, into maybe also the African arm is really what, you know, where there's a lot of growth potential and a lot of value that can be derived and also given back to those communities that you kept speaking of. I mean, your own home community, which I want to ask about a little bit later in the podcast as well. But, um, you know, I guess I'm really curious, do you kind of share that same spirit of you know, um, changing a bit of the way the supply chains have been structured around taking raw goods and then moving them around the world. Do you want to bring some of that back to Africa or 
is that maybe secondary because you've run into some major bottlenecks and maybe you say, hey, you know, there's a reason it's this way. Maybe we should leave it like that. Like, I guess I'm just curious on your candid perspective on on kind of um, supply chain. 100 percent. 100 percent. The vision and the goal is to bring manufacturing back to the continent. Now, the thing is, that can't happen overnight. And, you know, business, I don't see business as a short term thing. It's a journey. And so when you look at people like Aliko Dungote or Boa Group, there are some major manufacturers on the continent, right? It's just that there aren't a lot of them compared to most of the rest of the world. So when you see people like Aliko Dungote building the largest refinery in the world, yeah, uh, that gives me hope and gives me quite a bit of inspiration to know that I can do it. And there are a lot of manufacturers here in Nigeria and you know, in Ghana and South Africa and Ethiopia. And so there is more manufacturing coming, but yes, the journey for me is 100% value addition. As a matter of fact, I mean, most of what Afrivana distributes now has to be value added. So right now we're at a stage where we're doing copack. All the hibiscus that we export into the States or used to export the States just as a commodity, I watched how it was repackaged and then sold into the stores. I followed the entire supply chain, right? From farm all the way to the, to the retail customer to see what is the value addition. With hibiscus, for example, it's already dried. The same way it's dried, it's the same way most people buy it. The only value addition is that it gets packaged. And that's something I could do here. Mm. However, there are a, a lot of roadblocks. There are a lot of roadblocks. But these are some of the challenges that you kind of tackle one at a time and watch your, your growth year over year because it, it's not a sprint. It is a marathon. And we're here for the long term. We're not just here for uh, you know a few years. And I don't expect to have that level of growth in just a few years. You know, there are people who've been in these industries for 50 to 100 years. So we are taking it step by step, but we are very clear. We want to vertically integrate. We know that we want value addition to be done on the continent before exporting. And so, you know, um, I'm not really interested in just commodity trading. You know, I've turned down lots of contracts and lots of products because they're just, for example, cashews. You will never find Afrivana exporting just raw, non-value-added cashews. You know, it doesn't matter the size of the contract because it's just not part of what our vision is. And so, yes, 100%. The continent needs manufacturing. That's where we are today and that's where we're going because we have the manpower, we have the human capital, we have the resources. When you talk about that long supply chain, it makes no sense. Mm -hmm. That's why things cost so much, right? It makes no sense that you can have, you know, cocoa leave Nigeria or leave Ghana or leave Ivory Coast, go somewhere else, get made into chocolate, and then brought back 
locally into Nigeria to purchase. It would be much cheaper even for the end consumer if it was if the raw materials already here. So when you talk about logistics and the logistics of getting raw materials to a local factory that produces it, and then you export, saves everybody time and money. Yeah. So so what do you think, in your opinion, I mean, you, you said you're you're calling in from Nigeria, right? You're in Nigeria now. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. I am. So, uh, you know, you said you want to vertically integrate, uh, you know, you want to bring manufacturing back to the continent. You know, I get it's long haul, but what, what are some of the roadblocks? I mean, what are some of the issues you face when you say, okay, you know, it sounds great, but, but when you start actually mm -hmm. implementing and you roll up the sleeves and you go out and you start doing, I mean, what, what are some of the roadblocks that you see? And, you know, what are some things that you'd like to change pretty quickly um, to drive that, that, I guess, that mission? Um, okay. I'll start with local roadblocks and then I'll get into international roadblocks. Okay. Because like there are domestic roadblocks and then there are international roadblocks. So domestically, infrastructurally, I'll speak of Nigeria. We have certain infrastructural roadblocks. Now, I will say that domestic or international, the number one roadblocks are people. That's the number one roadblock is people themselves. However, with infrastructure, roads are roadblock. You know, the, the logistical dynamics to getting goods, you know, from Northern Nigeria to the ports in Southern Nigeria is a whole journey and experience. <laughs> you know, that alone, you can make a movie out, right? So you have the logistical roadblocks. You also have certain roadblocks in terms of, you know, uh, electricity, right? Power. Power could be a huge boost for development. And in Nigeria, we still have infrastructural roadblocks like power, like, you know, uh, um, roads. And then depending on what product you're talking about, water, right? And so, uh, and then even just get into like quality and all that stuff, but it still comes down to having the infrastructure around proper warehouses that have the proper power supply and the right road networks, right? These are some of the roadblocks when you talk about the domestic roadblocks. And I already said, people are in a category of themselves. That is the number one roadblock everywhere is people. But everything outside of that, you have some of that. So that's domestic. Um, then internationally, there are certain roadblocks for, let me say for an African exporter and distributor like us, you have to get over the learning roadblocks, right? You have to learn what are the licenses you need, what are the, uh, you know, important requirements you know what are the certifications you need right people don't know about not everybody knows about getting the certificate of analysis or the standards to which the american consumer or the american buyer requires 
for their goods to come under. When you're talking to somebody that is in a rural area or is just used to a certain standard of, you know, accepting a certain quality of product for a domestic market, they're not really thinking about it from your perspective. And so there were a lot of roadblocks of learning how to import, how to package, right? If you see the way we package commodities in these sacks, it's acceptable domestically, but a Walmart or a Target, they're automatically going to decline that product, not because the quality isn't great, but simply because it's not packaged properly. So even with packaging, for example, with hibiscus, you take the hibiscus from Nigeria, took it into America, realized, okay, um, there were certain uh, markets in Los Angeles that wanted to buy the product because they wanted the product, but the packaging wasn't right. So I looked for a co-packer, found the co-packer, but also found out it has to be a certain standard of packaging, right? Whether it's the TS-45 or there are certain grades for packaging that food has to go into. You can't just put it in any old bag and it's fine, right? So these are things that you have to look into and figure out. You have to get your certificate of analysis. You have to do certain things that, you know, for, for someone in the local market, all they care about is take the product, it's good, take it home, boil it, make your tea. So there were some of those roadblocks. Other roadblocks also included things like being a new player, right? We, we, Afrivana has very much been, you know, that out of nowhere, kind of that six man, you know, uh, uh, dynamic where we just kind of came out of nowhere to most people and the reality is we took a lot of time to do research before we started playing in the game so that kind of surprise element for some people a lot of people in the industry they're very standoffish like i said people have been in these businesses for 20 plus years if you're a rookie in the industry anywhere, whether you're a freshman in college or you're a rookie on a team or whatever, there's certain things you, you have to go through to kind of earn your stripes. And so we've had to take steps to earn our stripes in the industry and we're still earning our stripes to show that we belong here, to prove that we are worth paying attention to. And so, I said, you know, it wouldn't be fair to jump into any industry and really not have barriers to entry. Um, so there are barriers to entry. Uh, I don't hate all of them, but there are some barriers to entry that, and, and, and they're good sometimes, you know, barriers to entry kind of determine, are you in it? Do you have the skin for it? You know, can you earn your spot? Can you develop a niche for, you, for, you, for yourself? Um, there was a book I recently, uh, Blue Ocean Strategy, right? You kind of have to define your own space. Business is a sport. 
So you can't just expect one to say, hey, come in with open arms. People really have to see that, you know, you're, you're a player worth playing with. And I'll give you one short story about that. So I was Please. making some calls. I was making some calls, right, to, to find customers for my hibiscus. And I called this distributor in Los Angeles. And so he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody calls and says they have this product and blah, blah, blah. He was like, listen, if you're the big shot you think you are, why don't you go down to Mexico and then you can call me? And I said, okay. And that's exactly what I did. I took it as his advice. I bought a one-way ticket to Mexico. And when I landed, I was like, I called him. I was like, yeah, you said to come to Mexico. And he was like, are you serious? I was like, yes, I'm in Mexico right now. So he was like, all right. And I tell you what, that's somebody that we still do business with today. Great. And I'm proud to say that because again, it's, it's about earning your stripes, earning your spot. Um, there are barriers to entry. There are, you know, hurdles to cross about who's really going to put in the work and the effort to do that. And that's what Afrivana is. We're, we're, we're here to prove and show that we are the African distributor you should do business with. Yeah, and I think what you said, those entry barriers, I mean, if it were easy, everyone would be doing it, right? That's like the most common saying in the book. And I think um, you're right. I mean, Western markets, they're very demanding. They're very, um, you know, high entry barrier kind of markets. Uh, and it does take an element of education. And I, and I, um, I think, you know, looking at one thing that stood out to me when you were speaking is, I think that that key word education, I think in the African markets are um, so is so critical, right? How not just how do I produce maybe better, smarter, more efficiently, but also, you know, what do I even need to do to change the outlook that I have on the world around me? I mean, how do I enter these markets? How do I yeah, how do I get into the United States market or the German market or the European market? How do I, you know, tackle this whole concept? And I think there's more and more institutions kind of popping up that are trying to bridge that gap. Um, and I, and I, yeah, I, I, I guess my next question for you would be, what projects are you working on specifically? And, and I guess, do they relate to maybe some of that educational? Because I'm thinking, You've got the sales side, right? So you're obviously working on certain products that consumers will love. And I'd love to learn about that. But maybe you've also got some projects going on in Africa domestically uh, that you'd like to share with, with the audience. Yeah, great question. And, and yes, absolutely. So in terms of products, we're, we've expanded our, our portfolio, right? We're bringing in other African superfoods that some people are familiar with, but there is a lot of education that has to be had with African superfoods. And so with that, there is an aspect of our business that will be heavily educational driven. And I'm glad that we're on a podcast because some of that will be done via podcast. So there is a huge part that's going to be education driven where we educate people about what African superfoods are, what type of superfoods are available um and quite frankly there's a lot of them or some of them that people already use 
but don't recognize as African superfoods, hibiscus being one of them, right? So there's that part of thing where part of things where I'm, uh, you know, we're doing a lot more training here in Nigeria. Actually, on August 2nd, I believe, I'm hosting a uh, business clinic and talk to people about how to get started in exports. And so there's a whole educational and training program that we've developed to teach people about how to get started in exports, how to tap into the American market. So that's one aspect of things. In terms of other projects and other things we are doing here in Nigeria and in the States, actually, in Nigeria, we just um, opened our packaging facility called the Pack House. With our private label, we're for the same customers in the US and a lot of new customers. There's a lot of people out there and companies and supermarkets. You have Trader Joe's, you have Costco, you know, you have companies like this, uh, Sprouts, that carry a lot of private label product, you know? And going back to some of, yes, there are a lot of fears and requirements in terms of quality, but we want to be given that opportunity because we meet the standards, right? We want that stigma of what African products are and what you can get from the African continent to be eliminated. And that's what Afrovana is here to do. So we have the quality standards, we have the, the product obviously that they need, and we understand how to package it because we've spent the last couple of years in the United States, packaging in the United States for these same customers. We understand exactly what they want. So now we're bringing it back to the continent to be able to do all our co-packaging here for our private label, um, customers in the States and for anyone else that needs contract manufacturing. So that's really the other thing that we're, we're doing here on the continent, contract manufacturing and co-packaging. And then we're going to be spending a lot of time educating, training, hosting workshops, seminars, um, teaching, especially young entrepreneurs, women entrepreneurs, how to really tap into this global market because that's what we're doing. You're in Germany, I'm in Nigeria, and we're talking about this, right? About an American market. So this that's is the world. world we live in. Yeah. So, you know, that's the opportunity. And those are some of the things that we're currently doing. And I think it's, I mean, it is so incredible that you're not just looking at this as a business model, because you could have said, I, I shalom, I'm going to live in the States in my, you know, whatever, nice house in Texas or wherever you might live. I don't, I don't know where you're from there. Um, California, California. Okay. Beaches even better. Um, and you know, right. I'm just going to build this business model and keep pulling things out of Africa and make a dime. But instead you decided to go back home, right? You're living in Nigeria and you're not only just looking out for the business and the profits, you're also re-educating young entrepreneurs, you know, young leaders in, in your community. And I think that's just incredible. I don't think a lot of businesses do that, especially at such an early stage, right? You're not, you know, a massive established company with X amount of marketing spend on, you know, social projects or something. You're doing this right. out of the the root of your, um, I guess, your upbringing and in, in, in your heart. And I, so I'd like to kind of go into that a bit more. Let's, you know, dig into some childhood stories, maybe, or just some of that, what you said about the community <laughs> element, because I think, you know, for me, 
living in Nigeria, I, I can't even really imagine it. I hear stories, I've watched documentaries, right? But you know, what what does that look like on a daily basis? And and I guess what what were some of those early childhood stories? You kept you keep talking about my community, like where is this community? You know, what what was the daily life like before you moved to America? Well, great question and, and great point. Uh, you know, one thing I want to, I guess, part of what Afrivana proves and part of what I personally want to show is that it is profitable to invest in Africa, one. Two, social entrepreneurship can be profitable. It's not about charity. I think a lot of people look for nonprofits to start in Nigeria, uh, even as a business opportunity. However, it is okay to be profitable and be for profit and do things that still develop the communities and your society and still make money, right? It's, it is doable. And I think that it's a lot more fulfilling as well. So that's one. Two, in terms of life in Nigeria, you know, Nigeria is probably one of the most interesting places you will ever go to in this world. And I say that obviously as a proud Nigerian because we're known to be quite proud, but I also say that because it's quite true. Because in Nigeria alone, you have well over 400 different dialects, mm -hmm. okay? You have, and so your experience of Nigeria will be totally different. It would feel like a totally different country going to a different side of Nigeria. So it's not this monolithic country. You get so much culture and you get so much diversity out of it. And so that is the beauty of Nigeria. And that has also been our challenge is that when you have so many differences and different cultures and different interests, it could be a challenge to become unified or have a united vision or look at each other as one. And so for me, you know, I always say that I'm always specific about saying, you know, I was born and raised in Northern Nigeria. And the reason why I'm specific about that is simply to give a cultural context to, to my upbringing. And so when someone from Nigeria hears that, they automatically understand the cultural context under which I was raised. In the same way that someone who tells me, oh, I was raised in Southeast or Southwest Nigeria, I would have some basic understanding of their cultural concept or uh, you know, dynamic. Now, at the same time, I think some of the most popular places in Nigeria are Abuja and Lagos. Mm -hmm. And so when you go to Lagos, it's kind of like, New York City wired on Red Bull times 10, right? It's, it could be quite chaotic. You know, it's, it's very populated in very tight spaces. And so if, if you've been to New York and you get that dynamic, that's what you're getting. You go to a place like Abuja, it's more like Washington, D.C., right? It's the political capital. You have that sense of things. It's not as crowded, even though it's getting more crowded, but it's not quite New York, right? And so 
that is how I would describe it generally. However, growing up, Nigeria for me growing up is a lot different than what it okay. is today. You know, I grew up at a time where Nigeria is still in its early stages of development. You know, we were, we just got our independence in the 1960s, right? And so it was still an infant. And then the capital moved from Lagos to Abuja. And so Abuja was, you know, maybe a year or two old when we actually started living in Abuja. So it was very fresh, new, all the, the infrastructure, everything was brand new, <laughs> you know, when, when I first started living in Abuja. And so it's different than what it is today. You know, um, it's becoming a lot more populated. More people are moving to the urban areas from the rural areas. There's a lot more development, a lot more businesses, a lot more people. And so it looked very different. And in Northern Nigeria specifically, culturally, things are still the same, right? And I, and I enjoy that, I quite frankly do. Culturally, things are still the same. And you know, it, it makes me feel at peace and at home being able to have that. It's like Abuja and Lagos, you know, that's kind of where, you know, I go to get business done. And, you know, to get business done, you, you kind of want the hustle and bustle. You want to be able to conveniently meet people and, you know, get wind of opportunities and things of that nature. So now Abuja is a lot more populated than what it was. You know, there's a lot more traffic, uh, but there also still is a lot of uh, opportunity because it's still in its infant stages, quite, quite frankly. So it's, it's growing growth daily. The growth potential is massive, right? The growth potential is massive. It and really I think is. Nigeria has the largest economy in Africa now. I mean, that's, that that's what I was um, told. They've surpassed South Africa in terms of uh, economic firepower. So that's quite, that's quite something. It's a show of, uh, you know, how formidable of a country I think it is. Um, you did say one interesting thing too, you know, about culture and how you like this North African culture, I guess, um, you know, it's a big part of your identity and you like that it's kind of still saying. And I think there is this dynamic between globalization kind of almost, I would say, versus culture. And I think you see a lot of places as, uh, you know, globalization continues, uh, a lot of these unique kind of micro cultures. I mean, I see it even in Germany, right? We have a, we used to have a very strong culture. It's very different now it's dissipating you see it in latin america you've got these beautiful tribes and they start to westernize and you know you're seeing it kind of all over the world and i've had this conversation even in a personal notion where you know i have a friend from chile and he said you know kind of you know because chile is a very advanced kind of latin american country and he said all of these tribes all of these kind of things that made chile unique we've had to sacrifice and kind of push aside in order mm. To, to be a global player, right? And, um, you know, I, I want to kind of just, because who knows where, you know, maybe this podcast proceeds and, you know, 100 years from now or 200 years from now, someone gets to listen to it. 
you know, can you kind of just share what, what is that culture that you hold on to? And is it very agronomic based? I mean, is it agricultural based? Um, just give us a bit of insights because who knows, right? The globalization trend isn't stopping. And, uh, and I kind of right. like to capture that. Yeah. Um, look, uh, so Northern Nigerian culture, um, I'll describe a few ways. So it is very agro focused. It's still, you know, a lot of people are still in make their living off of agriculture. So it is, it's still agricultural based. Um, religiously, it's predominantly Muslim. Uh, in terms of Northern Nigeria, most of Southern Nigeria is predominantly Christian. And so that's, that's quite an interesting dynamic to Nigeria as a country. But speaking specifically for Northern Nigeria, culturally, I, I would say there's a lot of similarities with um, Arabian society, mm -hmm. or I would say Middle Eastern culture. Very, very similar in terms of religion, in terms of some of the language, um, in terms of just cultural new food. So there's even, you know, horses. Um, there, there's a lot of similarities there. So we have a lot of farmers, we have a lot of cattle rearers, um, a lot of nomadic people. And so what you find is the, the culture you have, if you were to draw a line across Sub-Saharan Africa, on a map, you'll find that East Africa, along that line, the cultures are very similar, and you'll find that the religions are predominantly the same. And so that line cuts across northern Nigeria. So when you go from Senegal all the way to Sudan, and you draw that line, at least with a certain width, if you will, Sub-Saharan Africa, you'll find that those cultures are very similar. And interestingly enough, right, when we talk about trade, right, the same trade we do with hibiscus and other commodities, that was the trade route. There is a Sub-Saharan trade route that's very ancient. And so you had traders going from West Africa to East Africa for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And so those same traders are some of the people I looked at growing up in terms of the communities I grew up in. I, I did get to see farmers um, sell their crops to traders who then put them on camels or on trucks and send them across the different parts of the continent. Wow. So the trade aspect wasn't new to me. It's just putting it on a ship and on a vessel. That was a whole new thing. However, culturally, that's the dynamic. And you'll find that you go to Sen you'll find them still wearing kaftans like this. You go to Sudan, you'll still find them wearing the same things. So we, we have a very similar culture. And I think some of that is also tied to the religious practice of Islam. So um, that's, that's, I guess, the best and easiest way I would put it. Okay. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating. I mean, you really highlight because here, you know, at Tridge, we focus so much also on supply chains and, you know, connecting supply chains and trying to identify new opportunities in supply chains. But it's really fascinating because what you just said, you know, 
these like trading has been around since ancient times. I mean, that this is a great story of how this is fundamental to our species, right? Uh, trading, exactly. trading goods, um, growing something, you know, distributing it to an area that doesn't have that good. I mean, we take it so for granted today and it's such a part of our life, right? We are all dependent on these very fragile supply chains, but, um, you know, that that's the way we've been doing it for, for centuries. Um, right. and I think that's, yeah, I think that's a really great, uh, anecdote. I, I'd like to just kind of pull the scope back out. Um, you know, you said at the beginning and you work in the superfood industry, you, um, which is very trendy, right? I, I think, you know, you grew up in California and I, you know, I, I went to Los Angeles once and I, was just shocked what people were willing to pay for acai bowls and <laughs> like deep pudding and all this like very unique food. Right. I, I grew up on a farm, so I, you know, we didn't have acai bowls down the road. Um, I, I guess. So, yeah, I, I just want to kind of ask you what trends have you excited? And this is kind of my second to last question. Um, but what 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 trends have you excited in, in agriculture and in trade and maybe also consumer behavior where you think, yeah, you know, this is going places. And, and you touched on this earlier, too. You said agriculture isn't really sexy. Right. Uh, and I think that's been a big problem for the industry in the sense that you know, a lot of youth don't want to go into it. It's hard work. It's toil. It's, it's, you know, but it's so crucial. So uh, yeah. What, what trends have you excited um, it, from your perspective, from where you sit in the world? Okay. Thanks for asking that because one, I'm very excited about African superfoods, if that's not obvious. Right. Um, and like you said, it's, it has become trendy. Superfoods are becoming a lot more trendy. Um, obviously, the health trend and the natural trend was already in. That's been a wave of like health, et cetera, especially in the West. And because of that trend, there's been different things that have gotten to ride that trend. Now, specifically from what I see um, in the West and in the diaspora, people are becoming a lot more educated about African superfoods. People, let's just take, I mean, pick an event. Let's talk about the Grammys or you talk about the World Cup. You'll see African artists on the stage, right? And so what's happened is Africa is becoming trendy and has become True. trendy. Yeah. Okay, so the fact that one, Africa is, has become trendy and then superfoods are also trendy that's a win-win for me, right? So um, I think because of the entertainment aspect becoming the first thing that has ridden that wave of popularity, now people are going to, you know, the clothes are becoming more popular and then the food. And so you, you, I, I follow trends, you know, I, I didn't just jump into this by accident, right? It's, you have to pay attention to the industry. You have to be an expert of, your industry, you, you have to know those things. And so from a marketing trend perspective, I definitely see the health, the health trend is going to stay in my opinion. And then the superfood trend, you know, is already here, but then the African superfood trend to me is still just kind of key. 
in that in that stage. And you find that a lot of you know supply diversity programs now want you know their international aisles filled with not just Hispanic products and Indian products. Now they're seeking out African products. And the big complaint is that well, we don't know where to get it, right? Well, welcome to Afrivana. That's why we're the African distributor of African superfoods because we are here to make it easy for distributors, for supermarkets to be able to get these African superfoods into their stores at the qualities they need, you know, the packaging sizes they need, and just conveniently in their backyard rather than, you know, thinking about, oh, I just, I have to export it from Africa and I don't know how to do that. Well, we're the all-in-one experts on trade with Africa and especially with African superfoods. We'll get it to your door. We know how to source from the supply side. We know how to do the logistics. We know how to get it to your doorstep or to your distribution center, whatever it is. So we don't really, we want to get rid of all those hurdles, all those no's. I've just been looking for ways to turn them into yeses. And so that's the trend I see. And going back to the thing about agriculture being sexy, I think this is what it takes. It takes young people in the industry to start talking about it, but not just talking about it. People want to see that it's cool. And one of the things you're going to see from Afrivana, I guess, in the next coming months and, and year is you'll see a lot more influencer marketing mm -hmm. because now you have a lot of influencers, celebrities, whatever you want to call them. People are looking for natural, healthy products to sell, not just selling t-shirts anymore, right? You know, people, there's the fitness trend. And so on the back of that, you have to give people something to eat, supplements. You know, that's still in the baobab powder supplements. We have hibiscus powder supplements. We have turmeric powder supplements. We have ginger powder supplements. We have all African superfoods. And whatever industry you want to put it in, whether it's health and beauty, whether it's the pharmaceutical industry, whether it's the supplements industry, you know, we have a way to play in there. And so we are going to make it cool to be in the agricultural industry. You don't have to be at the farming stage. There's a long supplier. You could be a supplier. You could be a distributor. You could be a retailer. You know, you could be a marketer. Depends on where you want to play. And, you know, you just find your space and you play in it. But we'll make agriculture cool. That's, that's for sure. And I, I think that, that that's one of the things that you will see from us. But it does take young people to, to kind of see that. If you've seen some of my content, you know, I've kind of done it in a way that people like the travel aspect. So when you show I'm traveling to Germany because of agriculture, yeah, someone that's looking at, well, I want to travel too. How did you get to, you know, start traveling the world because of agriculture? Um, the, the reality is we're in a materialistic world. So people want to see the clothes you wear, the car you're driving, the places you're traveling to, no problem. Agriculture is very lucrative and, you know, it's, it's just also about how to market it as that. And I think that's one thing that agricultural companies miss yeah. is that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you're selling. 
you have to make it appealing and attractive. Yes, people have to eat, but like you said, you'd be surprised what somebody in Los Angeles will pay for a, a, an eight ounce bag of hibiscus, right? Because it's packaged a certain way for them and it attracts them a certain way. Right. People want to be, you know, you have to appeal to the taste of different people. Just because someone has to eat doesn't mean they'll just eat trash or that they don't want their food to come out in a fancy way. There's lots of restaurants that'll serve the same salad. One person will charge $5 for it. Another person will charge $20 for the same Caesar salad. And it's all about presentation. It's like brand, brand identity, right? Um, and I think you're playing into that where we need to get stronger in agriculture of creating and, and it's a big topic, right? Because agriculture has been this kind of commodity-based industry where it doesn't really matter. It's just a, uh, it's just grain or it's just apples or it's just, you know, whatever. It's just a papaya. Uh, and we need to definitely start shifting. And there's been movements toward this, like, you know, they're doing branded apples. They're doing branded um, fruits. They're doing all sorts of different things now um, because that's where the money is right that's where the opportunity does lie is really speaking to consumers directly um and actually giving some of these ag products an identity right um giving it real people giving it real stories um yeah and i guess that would be my last question do you have a story you can share with us shalom something out of your your <laughs> life in this business is there any final kind of anecdote that you can share like a case study that brings Afrivana and I guess the spirit of what you just said to life. A case study that brings Afrivana to life. Well, gosh. Did I have you stumped? You know, well, let me not say you have me stumped, but I'll tell you this. So one of the things that, like I said, marketing is a big part and this will still play into that. It might not be, a, I don't know. Well, I'll just say it. So, Really, for me, the story or the case study I'll give is really showing how one product moves from farm all the way to retail. And wow. I spent a long time showing that in bits and pieces over years until the final thing all came together. You know, someone could look at a one minute video from Afrivana where we're showing you farm to, you know, to store, but people don't understand that there have been years of work behind that, right? To get to that point. And when I initially decided to come back to Nigeria, I called an aunt and I, I had told her that I was coming back, actually back up. She came to visit in the States and I was telling her, yeah, I want to come back because a lot of people in the diaspora always talk about coming back. They always okay. want to go back home, but not everybody does it. And then some people get back home. And now in my case, I told her I'm coming back to do business. And she said, okay, okay. So I showed up and this was probably eight years ago or so. Now I took that out probably like, uh, between four to six years ago, give or take. And um, what happened was I came during like a political year. And so a lot of things were happening, blah, blah, blah. And I finally made it to 
you know, a very rural area where most, even when I tell even Northern Nigerians, I'm going there, most people are like, why, you know? So wow. I went there, I spent some time, did my research, made my connections and start documenting that process. Now, I've been documenting this process. I told you about taking that trip to Mexico. I've been documenting the Afrivana journey from its beginnings. Um, that trip to Mexico when I first got there and didn't know anybody, and that's all been documented. And so I've kind of been gathering these blogs and this journey to, to form this case study. And the case study is not done. I think this will be part of it. But essentially, the case study is how do you take a kid from northern Nigeria like myself or a young man from northern Nigeria like myself? Um, I come from the part of northern Nigeria, the northeast, where the infamous Boko Haram comes from. And so coming from that area, right, it's how do you shine a light on a success story from that, from what seems to be, you know, at one point considered like the worst place on earth, you know, kidnapping hundreds of schoolgirls and getting all this bad press. How do you reverse that? That's one. Two, how do you also shed light on the development of a place like Nigeria where there's so much negative stories shed on Nigeria, infrastructure-wise, it's far behind what used to be some of its peers. When you look at you know, several Middle Eastern countries and places like China and the amount of years it took them to get to where they are today, that's the story you're gonna hear of Africa in the next 10 to 20 years, in my opinion. And I wanna be part of that and I am part of that journey. And so in terms of interesting stories, one, I mean, there are a lot along the journey and I will show more and more of it and tell more of them, I'm sure on, you know, on more podcasts. But the truth is I, I there's first container, okay? Um, someone tried to blackmail, and I'm not, I think it's the word isn't blackmail, but try to, Perhaps I would say extort. So okay. got my first shipment and this person decided because we were renting a warehouse from them, he just decided to lock the gates and said he wouldn't let Never. it go. So that was one. Then that same container on its way to the port broke down on the way. After breaking down, some thieves tried to break into it. And by the way, like I said, all of this is documented and, and recorded. And like I've taken, you know, vlogs of these things. But you know, then it got. They tried to break into it. Um, so so many things in terms of stories and the journey and challenges in the states to to import or you know at one point. I was shuffling between three different warehouses because I didn't have space. And man, it's it's been quite a journey. It's been quite a journey. And and 
all in all though, I am grateful for it because it has built more tough skin for us as a company and as an individual. I have real experiences of things that you probably wouldn't imagine, you know, um, going through and still being here. I'm grateful to God for all of it. And I'm grateful for the experiences because that is what the advice comes from. That's where it comes from. It comes from real experience. Uh, you know, we don't just give theoretical advice. Like we've done the entire supply chain. So we can really advise from that perspective. Going to Mexico, that was also something that a lot of people saw as very risky, especially because at that time, there was a ban on Nigerian hibiscus to Mexico. And so I, I've gotten to experience sort of my first deep dive into this ocean of trade was, you know, I kind of jumped into the deep end without knowing how to swim and yeah. then figured out how to swim. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's been quite a journey. Um, and like I said, I'm grateful to God and I'm grateful for all the experiences because today that's what people pay us to, to get advice for. Um, so Shalom, I think, uh, you know, we're coming to our last question. Uh, I really am curious, you know, you, you have a lot of experience, you've been around the world. Like you said, you have a lot of great ambitions. Um, do you have any kind of final words of wisdom, maybe to somebody that would want to follow a similar career path or, you know, get into a similar space, um, as you've taken in your career? Uh, do you have any final words of wisdom to share with the audience? Yes, you know, I would say, okay, for someone specifically that wants to get into this industry, and you know, whether it's trade or agriculture, um, really, I one of the main things would be find a mentor, like find somewhere you can learn and someone you can learn from. And I think that would make the journey um, easier and you would be able to get a lot more wisdom and other people's experience out of it. And I, I find a lot of value in internships and in mentorship. I, I've done a lot of that over, over the years in any industry I wanted to get into. And so funny enough, except agriculture, but I, I, would, I would highly recommend doing something like that. You know, get an internship, get a mentor, you know, shadow people and really learn the ropes before kind of hopping out on your own. And um, yeah, I, I think that would be one of the main things I would advise. So then that beckons the final question. Do you offer mentorship? Uh, and if so, how can uh, our listeners find you? So I'll leave you with this. There's a, there's a couple of ways out. Well, let me just leave you with this. In terms of mentorship, the way I mentor or I've started mentoring is you know, through giving out and sharing a lot of information. So to really get some mentorship from me, I have a lot of YouTube mentors, okay? It's people I've never met before that are my mentors because I learned from them. So, you know, there's a lot of content that I've already done in the past and more content that I'll be doing in the future on LinkedIn, on YouTube, you know, uh, um, occasionally do the classes where you can attend, 
most of them are virtual because there's people all over the world. And so, you know, I, I really do enjoy teaching and speaking. And so that's something you'll find me doing a lot more of now. And I think that would probably be the best way of getting, you know, a lot out of me. If it's in-person mentorship, I think the best way would probably be to, you know, become an intern and then really get to see how things actually work. So yes, I, I love teaching and I really do more people, you know, um, you know, find a space, find a path within, you know, uh, international trade. It doesn't have to be agriculture. I think with our business, it's the intersection of a number of industries. And so, you know, you can find your space. And I think there's a lot you can learn from my experience and from our business. And so, yeah, I would, I would say just reach out to me on any platform and, and I'd be happy to direct you. Fantastic. Th thank you, Shalom. It's been a pleasure having you on Agri Insider. Um, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much, Alicia. I hope you have a wonderful time out there in Germany. This podcast has been brought to you by Tridge, the leading global intelligence and networking platform for agriculture. Visit us at www.tridge.com to find out more.